Hello, beautiful people. I'm very pleased to tell you that my play Tinkerbell opens this weekend at First Stage in Milwaukee. My adaptation of Peter Pan from Tinkerbell's point of view runs April 26th through June 2nd. Tickets and performance information are available at firststage.org. Tinkerbell, April 26th through June 2nd at First Stage, Milwaukee. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Promote You, the marketing and productivity conference for theater makers. In a digital age where people are being cast based on their social media following and shows are transferring to Broadway after trending and building their audience online, it's time you learn from leading experts how to effectively promote yourself and your show. At Promote You, you'll get practical, hands-on advice from leading experts on a range of topics, including creating your branding toolkit, how to use social media to gain loyal fans, creating a website that sells and tells your story, and so much more. Fans of the original cast can use the code ORIGINAL19, all one word, to get your ticket at a $300 discount. For more information, visit theproducersperspective.com slash promote dash you dash conference. Promote you, May 17th at Signature Theater's Alice Griffin Jewel Box Theater. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a Tony Award-winning producer, podcaster, and writer. It's Ken Davenport, everybody. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Ken? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. And we're here to talk about... The Goodbye Girl. No more living for a lover Craving his approval Giving to very excited about this. The Goodbye Girl. Okay, so how did The Goodbye Girl come into your life? So The Goodbye Girl is a very interesting story for me, and I picked it um, for this podcast because, to be honest, it's the first time that the bloom came off the rose for me on Broadway. Oh, this is going to be fun. Yes. <laughs> so here's what happened. So Goodbye Girl came out in 92, maybe? Mm-hmm. Is that yep. right? Wow, That's I got right. that year right. The reason I got that year right is because it was right after I got to New York. So I transferred to Tisch at NYU in 1991. And... Goodbye Girl came out in 92. Mm-hmm. So I was, of course, devouring everything theatrical that I could. And on Sundays, I used to get the Sunday New York Times mm-hmm. and a bagel with cheese and bacon and the whole bit of my local thing and just go through the arts and leisure section. Yeah. And one day, this giant full-page ad for this brand new musical coming in from out of town called The Goodbye Girl had a, just this huge, beautiful ad. And I saw Martin Short, Bernadette Peters' name, Neil Simon's name, Marvin Hamlish's name, David Zippel's name, who I knew from City of Angels. And I was like, this effing show (laughs) cannot miss. This is going to be the best musical ever. I love all of these people. They're all brilliant theater artists, and I cannot wait. And I bought a ticket right then. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Full price? Yes. Wow. And I got front row seats. Oh, man. 
Now, that should have been the first indication <laughs> that maybe the show was not as hot as I thought it was going to be. Uh, oh I actually got the ticket at the box office. I walked up mm -hmm. to the Marriott Marquis and walked, and I said, I want to get this date. And um, they said, oh, there's no show that day. It was opening, and I tried to get a seat for opening. They said, no, 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 no. Yeah. I got a uh, ticket for the next uh, available performance, and I got in the front row. Uh, and there I was, and I saw the show. And I remember thinking, now look, prior to this time, every Broadway show I loved, mm -hmm. right? And I, I will never forget this too. Someone actually said to me, I went to see a show and they said, well, was it any good? And I literally said these words to them. It's Broadway. <laughs> it can't be bad. It's, I mean, this is I how got much. this far. Yeah. Yeah. And that, to be honest, the Goodbye Girl was the first experience I had where I walked out of the theater going, something isn't quite right here. Mm. I'm not moved in the same way. It didn't feel like all the pieces fit together. And it actually, I, I feel, and why I picked it, it was the first time that I felt I was maturing as a theater artist mm. because I was starting to really be able to tell. And I... At this stage in my career, and I was still an actor at this point, going to Tish and singing, you know, Why God, Why for singing classes. There you stuff. go. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, but I remember, I didn't know what wasn't quite gelling, but I knew mm -hmm. something wasn't quite right. That said, I bought the recording right away, like I did with every single show that I saw at mm -hmm. that point. And this was what made it even more fascinating for me, is the score is fantastic. Like, it is classic Marvin Hamlet's just big Broadway. Like, it's so good. And the performances are actually so good. And unfortunately, Bernadette had a tricky preview period. Mm -hmm. um, she was a little under the weather, and um, which was written about a lot of the time. Um, and frankly, she had a similar challenge during Gypsy, even though she wasn't sick in Gypsy, really. Mm. Um, but she had a couple performances where she was out and people like Michael Riedel were giving her some flack. And oh, I, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was convinced it was because of the goodbye girl. Mm -hmm. They were just saying, oh, oh right, yeah. yeah. And it really wasn't. I mean, mm -hmm. she was giving rock solid performances. She's an incredible performer. She's gone on to do a hundred uh, yeah, right. times since. But the score was great. And then I had to put together this like, well, why, if the score is great, why isn't the show quite working? So that's why I chose it, because it's one of those, again, s signs to me in my career that I was beginning to really dissect musicals more to try to figure out how they work mm -hmm. and how they work well, and that a great score doesn't mean it's a great musical. Right. Did you at any point think it was you, that like this was a good show and you there was something off about you because I've had that when I was that age had that experience a couple times no, of seeing a show I, and be like gosh it must be me no because it, it, it really was the first time I felt it mm -hmm. and I knew like every other show I I just loved mm -hmm. I smiled from ear to ear I just went out even shows that I didn't like you know I was a huge Andrew Lloyd Webber fan and still am and now I do some work for the guy which mm -hmm. is like a other mind-blowing experience but no I knew something just, just wasn't was off. It just wasn't gelling. And then I was right. Yeah. Um, and for years and still now to this day. But again, it's a great it's a great reminder that just because you have incredible people working on shows doesn't mean they're going to work. In fact, I just did a podcast recording with Jason Alexander mm. and we talked about yeah, Merrily We Roll mm -hmm. Along. And I said to him, like, what didn't work? He's like, who knows? But it was 
such a thrill. You're working with Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim, right. and you think, how can this go wrong? George Firth, and yeah. And, and there's just... just this special thing. I sometimes say it's like, you know, New York bagels are amazing because there's just something in the water. Mm -hmm. And with productions, there needs to be a little something in the water. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the ingredients that make it up. Right. And there was just something not in the water then. For a good by for girl. Goodbye girl. Well, yeah. And for Marilyn, unfortunately. Well, right. Well, Larry Fuller, I think, was quoted as saying at the time, it's still backwards. Like, how could it, you know, which is an interesting... I, I so <laughs> admire every single creative team member that says, like, I've got the answer to Marilyn. I've got it. I'm going to do it. It's such commitment and passion. And there, there's something just challenging about that, which is what made it so fascinating and interesting. Well, that's why it lives. I mean, that's what Marilyn survives, I think, because there is something... It, it doesn't work. It's never worked. But there's something in it that makes everybody go, that's that's great. That that could work if we just, whatever. And then people, you know, everybody from Hal Prince to Eric Schaefer has tried it. and It's like one of those great pieces of art that hangs in a museum that you go like, what is that? Yeah. I can't quite make sense of it. But you're drawn to it and sort of and lean it in. with you, yeah. Even though it may not be the most aesthetically pleasing to the eye. Right. It makes you think. And yeah. that's what actually great art is supposed sure. to do and Sondheim is better than that than anything. Right. Absolutely. So for those who don't know, do you think you could summarize the plot of The Goodbye Girl real fast? The plot of The Goodbye Girl based on the movie yes, uh, and is about this woman, single mother wow, maybe it should be revived right. <laughs> uh, single mother and a man who's an actor that comes, she's having, going through tough times and he rents a room in her apartment and they, of course, have a door-slamming relationship that eventually turns into them both being in the same room mm -hmm. uh, and how that relationship comes together in this you know, great love story. And the most interesting thing, and, and you know, well, to talk specifically about the recording, I think I can play this part, mm. is such a stunning musical theater song. I think I can play this part no one's ever got it right before I've a new interpretation And a lot of motivation And I seem to know my lines by heart I'm sure I can play this part And it's when, and I think the real climax of the musical, when the Martin Short character... Um, has to sing to the Bernadette's uh, daughter yeah. saying, as again, the actor metaphor of I can play this part, saying, I can be your dad. Yeah. And I'm getting chills just thinking about it's it. A it's, like, it's a great motif that pops up three yeah. or four times of, of what that means, the idea of playing a part, how that evolves between like literally the role to a relationship to, yeah. well, if I'm going to do that, this relationship has you know, other things with it, like her daughter, and I got to do all those parts. Yeah, and he's he's into it. And there's yeah. this great, sappy musical theater hug that happens at the when the, you know, the teenage daughter, mm -hmm. like, jumps into his arms, and you're just like, that's what musical theater is about. <laughs> Unfortunately, the other 80% of the show right, doesn't quite, quite as... work that well. <laughs> it doesn't hold. Well, what do you think? So, I mean, as you say, it's Neil Simon, based on his... Movie. It's Academy Award winning film with Richard Dreyfus winning an Oscar for it. And Marsha Mason's great in the movie. And you're right, this musical has all the things that would make it click. 
And I know they had out-of-town problems, like Gene Sachs was the original director, and then he was fired. There was a huge dust-up with that, obviously, which Neil Simon wrote beautifully about years later um, and his regrets over that experience. But it, it seems it's, it's a funny sort of t- twist. My first question would be to you, especially as somebody who looks at properties and develops musicals and things. I think there's always some part of adapting something to a musical where it has to sing. There's something about this that sings. Do you think The Goodbye Girl sings? Do you think it could be a, a, a really good musical? I, I do. There are certainly moments in it that sang unbelievably well. I think mm-hmm. I can play this part as a perfect example. You know, musicals... Source material should be musicals when there are moments and songs should appear when there are moments in the script where mere spoken word is no longer enough for the character to get across what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. And I think I can play the part as this perfect example of that. Here's a guy who never thought he'd be a dad, didn't want to be a dad at the beginning of this musical, and he falls in love with the mother and also with the daughter. And in this moment, he doesn't, I don't know how to get this across, and he takes it to another level, and you go right there with him, and that is a perfect example. It's a perfect little scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a great moment in the first act. Um, She's got a couple killer ballads, killer stuff. But I actually love the big group number in the show, the early one of Beat Bomb. What happened to Paula? So sad to see Paula, Paula, Out of breath, out of shape, and exactly as I thought. Behind. Look at her with the lungs of Madonna and a talk. Behind. A beat behind. This is so perverse. Better call a nurse. Better yet, a hearse. And the the rest of the ensemble led by Scott Wise. I mean, classic oh Scott Wise. Yeah, yeah. Like dancing up a storm, and they're on track, and he, she's not, and that's great. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest challenges I think the show had is they didn't know what to do with the ensemble after that moment. Mm. And they kind of appeared and then disappeared, and they didn't actually participate in the story. Mm. So if I were to revive that today, I'd probably do it with five people. Yeah. Like, there would not be this giant ensemble. So it was frankly, a big like Broadway ensemble. Yeah, for, because yeah. there was this convention of, and frankly, it was Michael Kidd, right, that yeah. came on, mm-hmm. director-choreographer, right, who... Sometimes choreographers, that's what they do. We're going to make it dance. There's a number in Act 2, if you listen to their cast recording, called Jump for Joy. what its purpose was like all the and you felt that yeah like there was a moment things were good so then all of a sudden the entire ensemble comes on and does a dance called jump for joy there's no lyrics right they just dance around do gymnastics 
And that's not what that movie was about. It, that wasn't the essence of the story. It wasn't a big story. It was a small little intimate story. Yeah. And I think that was one of its challenges. It didn't mm-hmm. know exactly what it wanted to be. And not all movies should be musicals. Oh, certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> Despite what you might think when you open up the Sunday New York Times these days, Correct. not all movies should be musicals. Correct. And so, I mean, obviously, you, you've produced them yourself, Kinky Boots being your, your Tony Award winning one. There, there are certain musicals that have that thing about them where you can take the story and bring it into the form. And even movies that are big, movies that are small, there doesn't seem to be any magic formula. There's just something about the story and the characters that makes you go, yep, that that absolutely does it. Yeah, I like it better when there isn't a giant brand to jump over, frankly. Mm. You just have to achieve such a high level to beat the original because people have such a beautiful memory of whatever that original source material was Mm -hmm. you are just you know trying running uphill from the Mm get-go kinky boots no one really knew that movie right right Right. full monty even Mm -hmm. which was a great adaptation by terrence mcnally was different than the original it was a small little film right so those are the ones that i think make the best because you're not the mistake is made when someone says i'm gonna do that movie and make it a musical because of the brand right instead of i'm gonna do it because of the story you know, my other favorite one, Billy Elliot. Mm-hmm. People don't even think of Billy Elliot as a movie anymore. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah. They think of it because the adaptation, both on the page and on the stage, the visual, made you forget about the movie. Because mm-hmm. it gets to the heart of what of the theme, of what it's about. I mean, it doesn't try to... The first musical I had an experience with of, like you were saying, of seeing it and going, oh gosh, I don't think this is, is so great, is big. When I saw Big... Oh, yes. Another I, good example. Right. Like, I, I love this movie. It's going to be great. Right. It's going to be great. And, and I, I remember at the time, I'm like, oh, that'll be great. They'll have the big piano. They'll do the dance. Like, of course this is going to be a musical. But I seem to have thought it through as much as the creative team did at that point with that thought. Because I think what makes Big an interesting story, you know, is one thing or the other. But what makes it a successful movie is Tom Hanks. Like, Tom Hanks's performance is what you remember about Big mm-hmm. and Penny Marshall's direction. And in the musical, without those two giants, it's kind of a problem. Like the problems of the story kind of start to come to the fore. And the musical didn't really wrestle with the themes of it, unlike Billy Elliot, which wrestles with the you know themes of gender identity and, and working class stuff, just like Full Monty does. Kinky Boots, the same thing. There's generational issues that the musical then goes for and then adapts from the out. Big felt like they were adapting from the outside in a little bit, being like, well, we got to have the dance. And then we'll figure the rest out as yeah, we Yeah, the funniest go. moment in Big the movie was like Tom Hanks blowing the crazy string right. out of his like nose. Yeah, like goofing around with the kid. It was a Tom Hanks vehicle. Right. The other great, it's such a great point on your part. The, the first time I realized that was actually Catch Me If You Can. Mm. Which I love that movie. I love that story. Uh, and the musical, unfortunately, never quite worked. And as I watched up there, I remember thinking, oh, wait, you don't, this guy is a thief. Mm-hmm. And he's taking advantage of a lot of people. Now, they did a, as good a job as you can in getting an audience to fall in love with your hero because you have to, and Aaron mm-hmm. Tveit is amazing, yeah. right? But when you have Leonardo DiCaprio playing your hero, the audience enters the theater loving him already. Yeah. So a movie actually doesn't have to work as hard as a musical without a star because the audience loves Leo from Titanic and whatever the... Ex- whatever the hell else he's done. Right. They don't think that when coming into a musical. 
Yeah. So Aaron Tveit is starting from scratch. And unfortunately, with that character, he can only get to the 50-yard line by the end of that show. That's it's a hard character. I mean, have you ever read the book that no. it's based on? He does not come off as a great guy. And he wrote, Frank Abagnale, he wrote the book. And he still doesn't come off like no, a great a guy thief. in the book. Right, exactly he, right. He, he like, was a philanderer as right. well. absolutely. And he's, you know, he's, 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 yeah, he's sort of unapologetically a thief. And like you say, when it's Leonardo DiCaprio or Cary Grant or something, it's roguish charm. But when it's... You know, starting from zero, like you say, it's that's a thief, and yeah. you better work really hard. The writing better work to make up the difference. Yeah, it's a, and also when you people often forget, or maybe they want to forget that, like the other the other aspect of that is I'm going to see a Steven Spielberg movie, and if Steven Spielberg's doing it, I think it's going to be good, and I'm going to like the people in it because that's the kind of movies mm-hmm. he makes, and so and it's Tom Hanks again. So you know, you have so many things that are working in your favor for the movie to be. You know, audiences to enjoy it, and and yes, you say you take it out to the side. But otherwise, we ha- I mean, small movies seem to work really well, like uh, Band's Visit most recently. I mean, being the big success that it is, and and having that, you know, a movie that not a lot of people have seen, and then putting that score underneath it and going to those characters. Yeah, they made it unique for the stage. They made yeah. it its own thing. Yeah, would you really have to do? And I so I wonder how much of now I haven't seen Goodbye Girl. Um, but I wonder, you know, with it being no, not a lot of most people of the have. world. Has I was gonna not, say it ran for 188 performances, I think, and one and didn't. I remember this is so funny when you brought it up because when I when that show was out, that was when I started reading. My my parents got the New York Times, and I started reading the Arts and Leisure section on Sunday for the same for the big splashy ads, and you know, from Wilmington, Delaware, my my perch was, but sort of looking at that, and I remember this show being re- like the advertising campaign being very aggressive and sort of knowing as a nascent theater person who Bernadette Peters was certainly knowing who Martin Short is and knowing who Neil Simon is and going oh this is going to be like you say a thing and then it was just gone I remember sort of like you know fine, must close or whatever and being like oh that's unusual I don't know what that's all about and then watching it at the Tonys and thinking oh okay like that's and that number they did is. at the Tonys though what I think they did the like talk about vehicles and Martin Short Number uh, mm-hmm. Paula and improvised love songs. Yeah, they, do that? they did. Maybe a French one. I'd be a jukebox to the dawn. I'd give you three plays for a quarter. And Mary, all you have to do is, is turn me on. I'm like a sort of short order call porter. Paula, Paula, Paula. I'd give you my last dollar. Put me on a leash and call her. Paula, feed me quiche, yes, for Paula knows if Paula decided to grant my fondest wish, I'd cling like a barnacle, no, copish. I gotta tell you, like, that number in the theater killed. Really? Because it was Martin Short being Martin Short. They right. just basically unleashed him. And I don't know the history, but I'm sure he had a big part in the creation of that song. Oh, because sure. It's Especially all the impressions. impressions and yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of my... This was another first for me in the theater watching that production. But Bernadette was obviously a little under the weather that night. Mm-hmm. And she had been struggling. Uh, and we all knew it. Yeah. And during Paula, an improvised love song, which... Uh, for your listeners who don't know the show, he gets her to go up to the rooftop and basically is saying, I love you for the first time and like be with me and the whole bit. And it's that big moment. But he's an actor. 
Right. So he improvs the whole bit and he sings this song, uh, which is very funny and includes all Martin Short doing his shtick, dancing around her as she's basically standing still. Right. So she had had a very difficult night. So he's doing his shtick and about two thirds of the way through the song, he does something. And she broke and she started to smile and laugh just a little bit. Uh-huh. And it was the first time I'd ever seen someone break on stage, certainly someone of a Bernadette say, Of that level, yeah. And the show got 50% better from that moment mm-hmm. on. Because frankly, the tension that we were all feeling about her trying to pull it together and right. do a great sh- show um, was gone. Yeah. And I remember looking at Martin Short going like, now that, what a performer. Oh my gosh. just so there for her. And And to be able to read it, I mean, to know that that's what needed to happen for her in that moment was to just like, let it go. You're going to have to. Yeah. (laughs) Look at what I'm doing on stage right now. And my show isn't even that good. (laughs) We all read the reviews. Let's just have a good time, shall we? It's no big deal. I did think it was funny listening to the recording. Um, I think it's during... No, it's during the the Richard the Third segment where they're singing a Yeah, life art moments where it must have been tough. In the I last know, week. but you know, I didn't see it in this last week. But you know, Martin Short was like sending that up big time. Oh with the yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a crazy number. Yeah, that was. A it's a well. It's, it's a funny number. It's one of the ones when I sat down to listen to it that I thought because in in the story he's come to New York to do a production of Richard the uh, Third, but it's a off off Broadway production, experimental theater where they're playing Richard as gay. And the director is a typical artistic lunatic and has a vision for this, and it's ruining the whole show. And what's funny about it in Neil Simon's script is that it actually ironically works out for Martin Short's character because somebody sees him and says, like, you were so compelling in that role. If you can do that, you can do anything and and gets him another job, which turns out to be really great. But... I remembering that from the movie, watch, listening to it, being like, gosh, this would really be an interesting kind of number. And then hearing it and going, okay, like that, it does actually move around, but it's frantic. Like it really feels like it's everywhere. Yeah. It's all Martin Short again. Right. I mean, they, I'm sure he helped, you know, his fingerprints are all over that. He's running mm-hmm. all over the place being a Martin Short madman. He's like Ed Grimley up there. And it's, <laughs> uh, it was fantastic to watch. I don't know how anyone else could pull that off. Yeah, that's a tricky... It was it was a weird one. I wonder it if it's one. Funny. Do you think it might have been one too many geniuses in the room problem? Because <laughs> yeah. you've got I mean Neil Simon, Marvin Hamlish, David Zippel, and Martin Short, and Michael Kidd. It's it, somebody's it, got to be there to say no. Well, especially <laughs> when things aren't working. Yeah. I think that's when things get very challenging. And look, I'm gonna I, I I've talked about this a lot, but never publicly. So you're getting mm. an exclusive oh, right now. Uh, you know, if you look at Marvin Hamlish's career. Mm-hmm. There's an argument to be made that for whatever reason, his music doesn't work in a book musical. Mm. Because if you think about the shows he's written, the only one that was really a hit was A Chorus Line. Right. Which isn't a book musical. Yeah. It's just song. after He was a songwriter. Yeah. Right? We pulled him into Broadway, thank God. Mm-hmm. 
But the other musicals that he wrote, I was uh, around a lot of Sweet Smell of Success, mm. which is another one. Somebody should talk about Sweet Smell yeah. of Success. There's some killer there are. tunes in there. Oh, that. my gosh, yes. And another show that, for whatever reason, did not work. Mm -hmm. Smile, same thing. Mm -hmm. And what's the other one? Uh, playing Our Song. Playing Our Song. Yeah. Which is a, not really a, as traditional of a book musical. So there's one of the yeah. greatest composers we've had in the world. Mm-hmm. But he and we think about him being this bigger Broadway success than he actually well, was. and because it's a chorus line. I mean, the the one show that was a hit was for a very long time the longest running show in Broadway. It won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, it is a, a mainstay of the theater and a, a, a giant work of art. But you but now give right. Ed Kleban a lot more credit. Yes, than maybe. Yes, he got. Yeah, he did really well because well, I mean it's Marvin Hamlish and Michael Bennett, and then, and then in the middle there is Ed Kleban. Well, he who, got a musical about him as well, which he is did. another great Class act. Score that is somebody good, should do yes, on your podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, you can get that album with Lonnie Price and Stafford Arima, assistant yeah. directing. And actually. just a slight plug for that. Sure. Uh, next best thing. Uh huh. Know that tune. Yeah. Which Stephen Sondheim is quoted as saying is one of the top ten songs I wish I yeah I wish I'd written, written. yeah yeah um, is is a killer song oh, it recording is. with Randy Graff doing it oh, yeah it's so good I love Randy Graff yeah <laughs> and though we fought there was no pain the sex was good but never great need I explain and come to think of it. It was the next best thing to love. When did you, as a person, make the, the switch from that side of the table to this side of the table? Well, I'd always been a creative person. I was a writer since I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. And I always also was a person that put people in a room like, I always gathered people together, which is really what mm. I think a producer does, is mm -hmm. to get people in a room. You know, I would start Dungeons and Dragons clubs when I was, like, 10 years oh old. Oh, I know. I just outed myself wow. again. I'm like a D&D &D No, head. you're good. Roll for initiative. So, <laughs> so I was that guy. And then I, you know, I obviously got into performing. And then my junior year of uh, college, I was recommended for a production assistant position on a Broadway show. Mm. Um, one of my professors at NYU called me over vacation, winter break, and said, I want to recommend you. I still don't know why. Mm -hmm. I did well in the class, but I, w I remember forgetting my homework one day. Like, I was petrified to tell him. but I was, So I wasn't perfect. Right. That said, oh, how timely is this? You see that scrapbook right I do. there? Yes. So that's my great-grandfather's scrapbook. My great-grandfather was a producer and a lyricist. Of, mm. of all. He worked for the Schuberts and worked with Sigmund Romberg. Oh, wow. And I brought it in to show him one day, that exact scrapbook, in 1992, mm -hmm. and said, this is my great-grandfather. And I think he was impressed by that, by like, wow, this kid loves the theater mm -hmm. and loves Broadway, and he saw my passion. Mm -hmm. uh, so he called me and said, do you want to work on the show? And I said, yes. I didn't even know what it meant. And that's how was my first like exposure to the other side of the business. And I remember being fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. I remember everything about that first day, including the speech that Barry Weisler gave to, this was the revival of My Fair Lady to the company. Oh, wow. And I remember thinking, this is just, if not more interesting to me than performing. Mm. That's when it started. Mm -hmm. I performed on and off for a while, but the old cliche is true. 
Um, if you can do anything else besides performing, you should. And frankly, people joke about that a lot. I think that's true of anything. Mm-hmm. So if you don't, if you love something more than whatever it is you are doing, yeah, you should do, do that. that. Yeah. <laughs> you actually will figure, but many people, oh, I'll never make money at playing golf or painting. Mm-hmm. If you love it, you will figure out a way mm-hmm. to make actually more than whatever it is you're doing that you don't love. And, and so much of it I tell my students, because I think that's a great teacher that you had who, it's not how you did in the class. It's what they saw in you. You can see that. And I've seen that in students of mine who have, like you said, not turned in their homework. But there's something in there where you're like, you, you can do this. You maybe don't even need the schooling. You can do this. Let's get you where you need to go. But, I mean, I often tell people that a lot of success in this business is just not quitting. Because people will peel off for whatever reason because they don't love it or they don't have this. People more talented than you, people with better, you know, maybe sharper than you or better, whatever, they will just peel off. And if you just keep doing it, eventually you're you're the one who's left. I had and that conversation with a 30 plus, no, 40 plus year veteran in this business mm. about an hour ago. Oh, wow. That it's about <laughs> sticking it out. I'll give you a specific example of this. You know, we all have our critics in this business and someone had written something about me not so very nice many, many years ago. And it was it was ridiculous, Mm -hmm. made no sense. But of course, it doesn't matter. And this person was a really nobody. Yeah. Um, And I thought about it recently. And then I come to find out that this publication that this person had done has vanished. Oh, gone, mm-hmm. shut down. And I remember thinking, oh, right, it's your critics, it's everything. You just mm-hmm. out, it's the Hamilton line out yeah. last, out fight, out yeah. whatever it is. Right. Just keep doing what you're doing and you will succeed. Yeah. You have to be a little crazy, too, is always the. That's definitely true. <laughs> definitely true. Absolutely does. So I'm, I'm really interested in this, the journey from like Goodbye Girl to that side of the table. But you did buy. The album. Oh, I, I like, I like the of course album. after that because that's my reaction to my, of course about the album. I used to I used to say I went to undergrad at Tisch and graduate school in Times Square. Sure. So I used to go to class. I'd finish at six. I'd go to the dining hall and then I would walk because I was afraid to take the subway. It was <laughs> 1992, so it was a little different. I got over it pretty quick. But right. I'd walk to Times Square. I would get a ticket at the TKTS booth or with a twofer. We had these twofers mm-hmm. back then. Or I would second act shows. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! She can't do that anymore. No, unfortunately. <laughs> Actually, fortunately, I was going to say, Ken, this that. is your. <laughs> uh, your I'm just fan. a theater fan. That's at the end of the right. day. So, <laughs> I used to then um, see the shows, mm-hmm. and then I would walk down to the Tower Records on East Fourth Street, yes. buy the recording, mm-hmm. and then go back home and devour the recording. Mm-hmm. I did it countless times. The other time that I remember that stands out and this because I love this effing show so much too was I remember seeing falsettos for the first time oh yeah and tearing down to tower records to try to get that recording and at the time there was no right cast recording there was the original march of the falsettos and falsetto land right I found them both bought them both yep and just I mean it was oh, like is... I had been starving for months and had a cheeseburger. I just mm-hmm. couldn't stop with that mm-hmm. music. Oh, yeah. That's an amazing... That's when I second acted like 20 times. So you saw Falsetto Land. Because <laughs> that's the second act. Exactly. <laughs> but I got to see Michael Rupert do it. I got to see Mandy Patinkin do it. Oh, wow. I got to see like everyone do it because oh, I was obsessed. wow. 
that's a great show. I mean, that is, and obviously just revived, and, and people know it's a great show. But I feel it bears repeating because it gets, since it, it's one of those funny things, since it didn't win Best Musical at the Tonys, it won Best Score and Best Book, but not Best Musical, it gets slid over a lot of, like the original production to me feels like it gets mm-hmm. slid for for, uh, for other things. And I, and I feel that, I think that year was crazy for you, won Best Musical. Uh, it's, um, which actually I think is the same year. Oh no! This is Kiss the Spider Woman. Was same year as Tommy girl. and Tommy. Lit. I remember this Tony's broadcast because I was obsessed with, uh, with Who's Tommy when I was a, a kid. I second acted that a number of times as well, <laughs> because uh, it was a tough one actually because that balcony, second balcony in St. James, was so high. <laughs> I remember picking up ticket stubs and being like, "I have a knee problem. Can right, I can like I... stand in the back of the orchestra? <laughs> Don't make me climb the steps." Uh, but my favorite tune. Man, you had chutzpah for that. Well, yeah, favorite. I know I was an actor. Favorite tune was in the second act. It was I believe my own eyes. Uh, oh, the which song, was the, the, new the new song. song yeah, wrote, yeah, which yeah. Makes sense that it was my favorite because it was a real musical theater song mm-hmm. that they wrote for story. Yeah, and it really yes, it, it does killer. Yeah, it feels that way though. I always think when you listen to the album and you're going, okay, it's the who, it's the who, it's yeah. the who, and then this like early '90s Pete Townsend song happens. Yeah. You're like, okay, and then it moves on just to the other stuff. That's a fun show, though. I saw that on tour, as, as I saw a number of things for that. So what did you... Is there anything you've learned from The Goodbye Girl that has served you, like, in reflection? If you're listening to the album, you know, back in the dorm and, absor- and absorbing it and mulling it over. Yeah, stars don't make shows a hit, no matter where mm. those stars are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I study a lot of this. It's why I have a blog and a podcast. Like, I really try to dig into trends and things. And one of the earliest trends I noticed was... The partnership between Kevin McCollum and Jeffrey Seller as I was mm. learning to be a producer and coming up and starting to produce. You know, they produced three Tony Award-winning musicals together. Rent, Avenue Q, In the Heights. All three of those shows were the Broadway debuts yeah. by the book writer, the lyricist, and the composer. Yeah. And the director. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. All three of them. So that's wow. amazing. Yeah. Jason yeah. Moore, Bobby and Jeff. Right. And Jeff Whitty. Right. Uh, Rent, Jonathan, of course. Obviously. Michael Grice. I didn't know it was Michael Grice's Broadway debut. Yeah. That's what's In yeah. the Heights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom Kale right. and, and Lynn. Yeah. That flies in the face of conventional wisdom for producing anything. Hal yeah. Prince once said to me when I went to his office, you want a show to happen? Get me to direct it. And basically what he was saying is directors have a lot of power in this business and they will follow us where we go. Yeah. So... But he didn't say that means it would be good. Right. And I think that's what I learned from the Goodbye Girl. It's actually what you just said. Young teams, hungry, passionate, mm-hmm. not yet proving themselves in any business that often is a surefire way to success mm. if they can get the shot. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, and also, I mean, except for Jonathan Larson, obviously, th- those are teams that have produced again. I mean, I guess that, well, I guess um, the Avenue Q team hasn't worked together again. But obviously, I mean... Bobby Lopez Bobby's doing okay. Doing okay. Yeah. He's got himself a double he got squared. Yeah. He could and he's so young, he could have a third. <laughs> yeah. he, it's so funny. I Bobby um, is, you know, I, we work on Avenue Q. I've known him for many, mm-hmm. many years. And, you know, I he arguably has had the most su- success of all of the people that we talk about yeah. in the industry, now from Lynn and Pasig yeah, and Paul yeah. and all this stuff. But for some reason, because he's he's like a, such a great guy, and people don't remember that he's got yep. a double egot like yeah. you do. Yeah, and he's produced some of our biggest smashes. 
He wrote a show. Do you know of his, uh, he and his wife, his Finding Nemo musical? I do. I saw it. I did too. Yeah. We took my son. How could you go to Disney World? We were in Disney World. And what was so funny watching the show and being like, I remember sitting there going, God, this is good. Like it's, the score is really good. And we went and they had the cast album and and my son loved the music. Like I won't buy that. And I'm reading the book like you do. And he's like, oh my gosh, it's Robert Lopez. (laughs) He is a super talent because he's one of those writers that it just all seems so easy. Yeah. It's just like you listen, you hear. And Kristen with his wife, the collaboration there just all seems like, oh, that... It, they're the type of artists who I respect so much because it makes you think, oh, I, I could do that. Mm-hmm. No, you can't. You can't. I can't, no, can't do that. You can't, right. But that's just how it comes out. Yeah, it feels effortless in that sense. They're also very chameleon-ish in their style, which I respect greatly. I like that, that their scores seem to suit the subject matter instead of the other way around. Unlike, I would say, Marvin Hamlish as a contrast, even though I love his music, you can spot a Marvin Hamlish score coming down the street. Mm-hmm. It's it's gonna because it's gonna knock you down. Yeah, probably. it's for back rack. Right, same thing. It's why mm-hmm. they both wrote a lot for film or individual songs. Right, because you can't. It's like too much sugar. Like you can't <laughs> digest that much sugar. It's like after a while, it's too sweet. Mm-hmm. And but a little bit at a time, it's like the best. It's yeah, it's a really great. Yeah, but that's interesting to me with. Um, what you said about Chorus Line being, and I think Chorus Line has a tremendous score, but being, I mean, maybe it is this a, a, a moment of a composer's style perfectly meeting material, because that does have a, I mean, it's a Marvin Hamler score. There's no hiding from it. But it suits that subject matter with Broadway performers and being so Broadway, because his stuff is Broadway with a capital B-R-O-A-D-W-A-Y. It is, you know, full tilt. And... In a show like Goodbye Girl, it doesn't necessarily fit every moment. I found that songs like the big character numbers really worked. It starts very, very strong. And even like songs like The Garfield Way, or the, those are big, if you say, Marvin Hamlishy songs. But when it got quieter and smaller, I found it a little bit obtrusive. She's you know. got like two ballads in the first act, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. that kind of do the same thing. Yeah. No More, right? Mm-hmm. Where she's like, that's it. Uh, an any I want song that begins with like no <laughs> it's true it's like yeah. I'm not going to take this anymore really what it's supposed to be about is I'm going to do this now right, right? so maybe there's that but who knows yeah um, but I think more about it it's um, you know with Chorus Line he was writing for very different characters every time yeah it's a that's very true. diverse group of people and I think again when he's only writing for maybe a few yeah the sound of those characters. Well, and also he's writing, in some cases, for the actual people yeah. who wrote or said those words before they were written down. So that's a that's a very different writing exactly. experience, definitely, for that push. Um, what's your favorite song in The Goodbye Girl? I think I can play this part. Yeah. That stuck with you on the... Yeah, and look, you're staring at a mouse pad with a baby on it. I <laughs> yeah. have a year old. or about to turn Oh, my gosh. Old, so now it's even more. Yeah, yeah. But that's... yeah, no, I love that moment. Mm-hmm. Because it's also... Martin Short and that character is sticky for the mm-hmm. first three quarters of the show and all of a sudden he has a very sweet moment. I don't know that I would have set it on a boat. That was a little too like treacly but <laughs> the songs. How was this is a question I don't often ask, but since you saw it, I'm interested. How was the set? Because this is I mean, early nineties, the 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 turntable is in full swing and the Broadway set is getting the technology is getting large. It was fine. I don't really remember. I remember a couple of moments in it. Uh, It was fine. I mean, it was at the Marquee. 
mm-hmm. which I think is way too big of a theater for that kind of an intimate story. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, to do that again, I would scale it way down and I would put it at a small little playhouse and yeah, do that. It does. I mean, we say, especially if you're going to do it with five actors, like that's a circle in the square kind of show if I've ever seen one. Yeah, it's an intimate story and it, mm-hmm. I think, deserves an intimate setting. So it may have been just a bit too big for that. Well, but again, they probably thought they were going to sell 1,600 Well, right. I mean, it's a big, like you say, it's a four-hander, five-hander. How many names did we name there? And yeah. It, yeah, it feels like it's going to be... Yeah, I saw Drowsy Chaperone at the marquee, and that's where that's suited yeah. to that sort of grandeur of it. Uh, yeah, this doesn't feel that big. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, it's a... I get interested in that a lot with the, with production value, especially the, the idea of, of when a show is not working, it seems that people decide to throw things at it throw visuals at it so the audience knows where their where their money is going and you know small stripped down shows which are much more my suit but obviously the tickets cost the same either way so it's hard for people to go listen you can't there's that great line in Pippin that I love um, from the the 19 was it 75 video recording of it with Ben Vereen where he says to you can't disappoint these people at $25 a seat <laughs> How Prince always Man. says that theater tickets have always been expensive, no matter what year it is. So I looked it up. I, I d- was interested in that. I read a quote of his for that, and I said, yeah, I'm going to check that out. So I plugged in $25 in the year to an inflation calculator online, and yeah, that's the same. The cost is the same, and which shocked me. I expected it to be comparable, but it was pretty much you know $125, $150, whatever it was, which is intense to think about. Yeah, it's. I, I, I find that... Okay, I'll ask you this question. How do you think the role of the producer from like Hal Prince to now has changed most drastically? It's obviously changed a lot. And you know, you, you don't see shows with one or two producers on the bill anymore. And and I always remember this number for some reason that the original production of Follies when it was a eight hundred thousand dollar show, which obviously they don't do that anymore. But what you know, with somebody like Hal Prince, who's producer director a lot on his shows and and, and worked them and, and that sort of thing and did big hits like Phantom of the Opera or which he didn't produce but he did direct or you know musicals like is it called A Doll's Life? The Doll's House musical? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which was not a success. How do you think the role of the producer has what's the biggest change you've found since you even since you started as a production assistant? We're much more we're required to be marketers much more now than we ever were. Mm. Um, I think that's a big part of what producers do is how to we un- roll our product to market. And the second thing, you, you, it's very ch- challenging, if not impossible, to be a career producer. Mm. This is one of the, this is why when people talk about where are the producers now, where, what are the next generation, it's hard to just say I'm going to be a producer. We are, we're not paid unless we get a show up. Mm-hmm. We have to get our own shows up. We hire ourselves. We're entrepreneurs. I consider myself a serial startup guy. If I don't produce a show, I don't eat. Period. Mm-hmm. So what you find is that a lot of producers have had to find other ways to mm-hmm. do things. We have a general management arm. For a while, I had a group sales company. Try to do other things around the industry um, that allow us to keep producing. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm a big advocate for more downstream revenue for producers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a show, Goodbye Girl. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Goodbye Girl. So Goodbye Girl did not work uh, on Broadway. Um, 
that so the producers probably made no money you know there's some fees and royalties just like there are to everyone but when shows aren't working everybody's waving right right everyone's like ah whatever mm-hmm. um now show closes that's it investors lose all their money so be it now the show gets boxed up and is licensed there have been productions of the goodbye girl since yes. 1993 right and i'm sure in many years after uh now the deal usually is of all the income that goes to the authors after 60% goes to the and I'm speaking generally because right. there are variations on this 60% to the authors and as you would read it in the contract 40% to the producer for getting the show up mm-hmm. that language is not correct the producer does not get 40% the investors get 40%. Oh. I've been actually arguing our, for our attorneys to change this language because there's this belief that, oh, well, the producers are making money on it. They just right. continue to make money. Uh, 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 uh. Hmm. So the producer, even if they came up with the idea or put the team together, got them in a room, shepherded it, raised all the money, gave birth to the product, which the authors are then going to make money on, the producer doesn't get a dime in most settings. Hmm. The money goes to the investors because the show has not recouped. Mm -hmm. And most likely, the goodbye girl will never recoup. So that producer spent four or five years of his life, never get anything. Mm -hmm. Now, if no one was getting anything, that would be one thing. It would be like a startup company that failed. But what we have in our business is that the authors continue to make money, which is amazing. They specced and wrote and did all that work, but so did the producer. Mm -hmm. So I've been I've been an advocate for is this a is there a way that a producer could share some of that as well mm-hmm. directly and the and sometimes this is met with like you can't take any more money from the authors and da 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 right. da my interesting argument has always been this authors want great producers right mm-hmm. great producers get to focus their lives on producing if I was getting a little bit of money from some shows that didn't work, Mm -hmm. I would be able to dedicate more of my life to the next show that I was producing, therefore becoming a better producer and serving the next set of authors even better. Well, and it's also a self-defeating circle because you're less likely to take a chance on a quote-unquote unsure thing if there's no back-end benefit for you from a business standpoint. Yeah. Whereas for me as a writer, yeah, sure. Like, we'll we'll go it, I get paid, and I get... If it goes somewhere, great. And even if it doesn't, if it gets published or whatever, it Yeah, it you still get some. Even, yeah, even yeah. shows that fail on Broadway, Goodbye Girl's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Many shows that fail on Broadway go out there and can find a lot of life. I wrote a blog about this, about Almost Maine, mm. which is one of the most published and produced plays in the country. And John Cariani, who's a, a, a friend and... Uh, great actor and great playwright just struck gold with this thing mm-hmm. and I wrote a blog and he was amazing because I wrote a blog about the original producer actually not making any money on that mm-hmm. the poor guy and John was surprised he didn't mm. even understand or know um, so it's one of those interesting quirks about the business that I feel like if we really want more producers we have to figure out a way that these folks can actually make a living until they get their big hit now, we don't talk about money a lot in the th- in theater education I find that one of my big kickarounds for theater education is like when I, I went to film school. And in film school, everything's about money. You are constantly talking about money. And you're, you learn how to write a budget. You learn that, like, well, if you're going to do this or that. Like, you, you learn to make decisions for financial reasons because, you know, it's more expensive to shoot here. It's less, you know, that's part of making 
a film. It's always a consideration. When I switched over full-time to theater, I was amazed that no one was talking about money, like how much things cost, where people get paid, how it all comes together. There's a lot more of like, no, no, we're just doing this for the joy of it. I'm like, yeah, but we're selling tickets, right? Like somebody's, somebody's paying somebody. Just tell me where it's all headed. I don't care. Just tell me where it's all going. And it's been... When people want to be actors, you know, there's a lot of, tell me how to get an agent, tell me how to do this, tell me how to do that. But anytime you sit down and be like, okay, this is how you budget your life so you can make money and act full time. Like that's, which is the goal, right? And people don't want to hear, there's either, the young kids don't want to hear about it because they're young and that's their responsibility to be irresponsible. Um, But there also seems to be this sort of sense, and I wonder if you've encountered this with creative people in theater, that talking about money is dirty. We shouldn't talk about money. Money is not something we concern ourselves with. We're doing this for the art. And I think, can't we do both? The phrase starving artist seems to be a, like a badge for some people. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, oh, I'm a starving artist. Like, that sucks. <laughs> Who wants to be a starving artist? Mm-hmm. You should really want to be a super fat, rich artist mm-hmm. because that will allow you to create more art and actually will allow you to give more to emerging artists. And the best quote that I have read on this is from Andy Warhol, mm. one of the greatest, really pure artists. Yeah. You think that was the guy that's like, ah, I'm bleeding on the street for right. my art. And he said, making money is art, and working is art, and good business is the best art. Hmm. I wow. read that quote, yeah. I was like, Warhol said that? Well, yeah. yeah, Warhol knew business. Yeah. And the most successful artists I know are the ones that are innate business people at the same time. Mm-hmm. Whether they know it or not, they have a business sense about them. Mm-hmm. Andrew Lloyd Webber is a brilliant composer, and I would argue even a more brilliant business person. And Rodgers and Hammerstein were producers. I mean, that's what that that's the, you know, this is not new. This is where where people have gone, well, let's let's see what, you know, let's make shows. Let's produce our own shows, but then also let's produce other people's shows. That's not that's nothing new. That is an amazing Warhol quote though. Yeah. That you think that, as you say, when you say artistic purity, like Andy Warhol would be high on that list. But you also, it, that makes a lot of sense to me he would have said that because so much of his art deals with commerce. I mean, as a man who understands that, you know, the, what's the difference between an advertisement and a piece of art? It's where it's hanging. Like, mm-hmm. That's the entire thing. That was kind of Warhol's jam, if I'm remembering my, my college art classes correctly. Um, this has been great, Ken. Thank you so much for for talking to me today. My pleasure. Geeking I, out on musical theater is something no, I love to do. Well, so. great because you're in the you're on the right podcast for that. Um, what do uh, do you have anything coming up this uh, in the next couple of months that you can tell people about? We're developing a whole bunch of shows. So uh, Belafonte, I talked about. I actually have a meeting in just a few moments with the writers of what we're currently calling Broadway Vacation. Which, if you know the Vacation movie franchise, yes. Vacation, Christmas Vacation, European Vacation, yes. we're developing the next installment in the franchise, Broadway Vacation. All right. The Griswolds come to New York City for the first time. Oh, wow. Uh, I have the rights to the life of Joy Mangano, who is the subject of the movie Joy mm-hmm. with Jennifer Lawrence, the QVC queen. Yeah. So, oh, single be, mother that of sings. two. That sinks. Yeah, <laughs> that sinks. The sings. dancing mop number alone. Right. right? Yeah. It gets you where you need to go. Uh, there's the book for right there. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, so, um, Stephen Sater and Duncan Cheeks next musical, uh, Ma Vie and Rose, My Life in Pink, based oh. on a little little Belgian film. Yes. Right? Uh, so a lot of development right mm-hmm. now that we're doing. And then I may have a show to announce for the fall. I'm just waiting for the phone to ring saying I have a theater. Ah. Our other people oh in this my. business. Yes, I was going to say. That's, uh, 
there's not a lot vacant right now either. I don't. There think. will be. There, there will always be. are. <laughs> The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts from the convenience of your iPhone and or check out the original cast on Stitcher if that's how you get down. My thanks to Ken Davenport for coming and talking to me today. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Rehearsal.